weather is the international best-selling author of Rich Dad Poor Dad, or the co-founder of Match.com, or the host of the MSNBC show, Your Business, they all have one thing in common. They are some of the many guests that want you to reach the finish line. Your host is Callan Diggs. Welcome. And welcome. Today I am delighted to have Lucas Krause. Lucas is the president of Real Property Management, a national property management company. But he wasn't always involved in property management. Prior to that, he was a baseball player, a pitcher for the New York Mets. So I'm very happy to have him with us to talk about the importance of reaching the finish line and how he was able to do that and where many professional athletes, when they retire, either they go broke or when they get when they get waived as a free agent, sometimes it's difficult to find work. Sometimes they can't be a sports commentator. Sometimes they can't be uh, a manager of a baseball team. Lucas, welcome. Hey, thanks, Kalen. Let's go back in time. Lucas, where did it start? You know, um, you know, were your parents involved in real estate? Did that kind of slowly influence you to get into the industry? You know, where did it start? Yeah, actually, it's a long and windy road with a lot of eclectic experiences that actually led me to property management. Uh, I actually, in my career, kind of bounced around uh, after graduating from Indiana University. I actually started out in the financial services industry with Solomon Smith Barney, mm. then ended up with AT&T as they were going through deregulation, and then stumbled into this thing called franchising with the capital group that owned Quiznos. That's from, uh, you know kind of how I got into franchising and uh, just through my network actually came in to help real property management with a turnaround. Uh, they were a concept that's been around for you know quite some time as a franchise only about you know six, seven years of history. but they were growing too fast and they had two true entrepreneurs and so they needed someone with systems and operations background. Mm. So I actually came into the property management world with no experience. Uh, the expertise I brought was more turnaround experience and being part of a franchise concept. I see. And so, and well, so, yeah, I've been with the organization for now, just coming up on seven years. Interesting. What did your parents do? Because I wanted to see if there's a tie or not. Yes. It's funny. Uh, you know, my mom was a teacher, uh, did, you know, taught high school and uh, did college in the summers. Uh, my dad had kind of a, a windy road also. I started out actually as a teacher right after uh, graduating, but kind of uh, had some odd jobs and different things, and then ultimately kind of went into business for himself and opened up his own restaurant. Mm. And so my earliest m memories of working was a seven-year-old on the grill uh, helping out my, uh, my dad as he was launching his restaurant. And so he did that for some time and then ended up becoming the GM of a golf course, which wow. obviously strange transition. Did, and, he got into real estate actually that way, where he ended up becoming a, uh, a agent and a broker mm. uh, with Remax, and so he did that till they just retired, uh, you know, last year. Mm. And I guess the next question is: Were there any challenges in your childhood that perhaps you found lessons from that has made you 
the entrepreneur that you are today? Yeah, you know, I think I've learned a lot. I was trying to you try to find influences everywhere you go. Uh, you know, I think it's always important that you can learn from your mistakes, but to me, the great ones learn from the mistakes of others. In my in my childhood, you know, my parents were both hard workers, and they were, you know, had we had three, you know, had three kids, and trying to make ends meet type of thing of working long, late hours. And I was the youngest, and so by a very early age, I had to become self sufficient. You know, my dad was working in, in the restaurant, my mom was teaching. So I think that's helped me just from a self-sufficiency of if you need something or want something, you got to make it happen. Mm. And so I take a lot of pride in, you know, and I, I thank my parents for that because there was almost just a, a self-sufficiency element that to me has kind of helped me go through kind of the learning process. Instead of having things kind of, I'll say, handed to you or spoon fed to you, <laughs> you had to learn sometimes the hard way. And those are some of the best learning experiences, as you know, of you know, stubbing your toe, making those mistakes, those lessons stick with you. And so to me, it was, I think, some self-sufficiency out of childhood, but also I had just great role models. My parents worked their tails off to provide everything they could for us, and they should be quite proud of what they were able to do. But to me, they modeled more by behavior rather than trying to, you know, puff out just and say they work hard. Right. So those are probably the main takeaways from my childhood. Interesting. And you know, as you were going through high school, you know, sometimes, you know, because every child comes from, you know, you know, different upbringings, you know, sometimes parents really, you know, kind of push college on uh, to their kids. You know, you know, co college can be helpful, but college is not for everybody. But, yep. you know, we've interviewed people in the past and we talked to a lot of, you know, you know, uh, uh, immigrant entrepreneurs who are very successful and uh, it's not uncommon to hear about how college was kind of forced upon them as you was approaching as you was approach, uh, about to graduate from high school did your parents kind of tell you that you know what lucas you don't have a choice you're going to college whether you like it or not or was it more like you know whatever you do son we're here to support you yeah, it was the former. My mother was very big into education. Uh, she ended up getting her PhD, and so it meant a lot to her. And I'll tell you, I, I thought undergrad was a great experience for me. It was a learning, growing, but I probably didn't get as much out of it content-wise as I should have. I don't know if I was really ready for it. Uh, Indiana University's got a stellar business program. I learned a lot from the professionalism, how to present yourself and have some polish. Uh, but I wasn't really engaging in the content and taking away the value, frankly, I should have been. Uh, you know, I was studying, getting, you know, and, and getting, you know, engaging in, in, in the content to pass the exams, get this, the grades you need. And so it was interesting as I reflect back, I did take a lot of value in learning, growing, figuring out who I was, uh, but almost look back, wish I, you know, engaged a little more in the content because my grad school experience was uh, dramatically different. Uh, you know, I did that full time while working and it helped me connect with the curriculum at a far deeper level because to me, it, I was able to apply it in real time. And so it played a big role, but I think it was, you know, not the intended uh, value add at first, a very expensive learning experience that I paid a lot of student loans on. Oh, same here. Yeah. Yeah. When... Did you go? Did you um, did you finish school before going on to the MLB, or did you drop out when you got uh, signed? Well, like, which oh, came first? Yeah, so I'll make sure to shorten it up because uh, it actually was the more of an unconventional route. 
I, I was, you know, a, a really good high school player uh, and unfortunately a little undersized. And so I never really had any scholarship offers uh, coming out of high school and maybe some preferred walk-on status. Uh, so I actually did not uh, play at Indiana my first three years. I ended up walking on as a senior, never seeing the field and not playing. I actually then graduated and went into the real world and uh, had some office jobs, as I mentioned, through you know Smith Barney, AT&T, and a couple others. And while doing that, I was still chasing that dream. Wow. Uh, playing with, some, and I had some friends who, you know, I knew there were get lining up workouts. And, and so what happened, I, you know, had, kept going to workouts, uh, anything I could, open workouts, private workouts, got cut from almost every single one of them. And fortunately enough for me, kind of one last ditch effort after putting in hours every night of working out after long work days, you know, it was kind of like a rocky training montage running in the snow. I'd throw against a, <laughs> I would throw against a brick wall to do simulated bullpen sessions because I was reinventing myself as a pitcher. I never really was a pitcher before that mm-hmm. and went to a workout on a Thursday for the, with the New York Mets. Uh, went to the workout. They were impressed. Uh, we started talking on terms on a Friday. I ended up having to quit my job that Friday and fly to spring training on Saturday. I was in spring training on a Sunday and, uh, was there with pitchers and catchers and throwing a bullpen session. And I, I saw, you know, about a couple of my idols that I got to throw next to. And so it was not the uh, conventional route. And uh, you know, I bounced around in the, in the minor leagues for them for about a year and a half, struggled with some injuries as I went through it because you can be prepared, you know, but when you're working an office job, you're not nearly in the same shape that, uh, you know, those guys are doing it for a living year round. Wow. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's definitely an unconventional story. You know, very amazing. You know, a lot of people, you know, some, some of these, some of the listeners, uh, you know, they're in college, mm-hmm. they didn't get picked up. Uh, the, the coach thought they wasn't good enough, and then for them, they think that's it. They say, "Oh well, I guess I'm not good enough. If a, if, a, if my college coach doesn't think I'm good enough, then I, I probably don't even have a chance of making it to the pros." So, mm-hmm. how does one get a walk-on trial? Like, how does that actually happen? Because you know, people have heard about this, but you know, no one really kind of has a uh, a tutorial of of how to actually find this or, or achieve such a thing. Like, how did you get this walk-on thing? Yeah, and Kaylin, just before I jump into that, because I think you brought up a great point of that getting deterred really easy. Uh-huh. I, I've been fortunate to accomplish a lot of things that I'm not remotely qualified to do, uh-huh. and I think that is a compliment. Uh, part of it's just persistence uh, and you know, kind of sticking to things. Uh, but to your original question around what you know, how do you find it? You know, fortunately enough, I had some folks in my network who you you ask favors and see if they can get you invited to some of those workouts. But they would publicize when they, you know, when scouts are having open workout sessions. I went to open big league workouts. I went to, it was, you know, even some of the independent leagues, which is kind of a rung below even, you know, affiliated ball. Uh And, you know, I got cut from all of those. But it was one of those of if there was going to be an opportunity for me to showcase myself, I was going to get in front of them. Uh I leveraged my network in every way. Um, You know, it's who do you know? Who do you know in your network that you can tap into? And, you know, I probably 
called on a lot of favors. And fortunately enough, I, I, I did enough to at least uh, attract the eye of, you know, the Mets and uh, was very lucky and fortunate to have a, a really neat experience because of persistence and uh, kind of sticking with it. Do you want to reach the finish line? Of course you do. But one objection you may have is, I don't have the time. One thing I've always suggested is outsourcing. And thankfully, now you can do so in the budget. Fiverr is the world's largest marketplace for services starting at $5. The wide range of services include logo design, photography, copywriting, voiceovers, video editing, and much more. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and click on the link on the episode page. And let Fiverr be the resource to help you reach the finish line. Interesting. You say you you say you played for the Mets for uh, about a season and a half. You know, what was it like? You know, because again, really, this is kind of in a way a very probably a euphoric experience for most people because it's a very small percentage of people mm-hmm. who actually make it to that professional level. You know, many people they may they may say, "Oh, yeah, I play Division three college baseball," or I may mm-hmm. play Division even Division one college baseball. But typically, uh, their kind of uh, uh, sports career ends there. You know, what was it like? You know, because a lot because I've I've interviewed uh, pr- previous uh, NFL players, NBA players in the past, and you know, you know, some of them talked about. You know, as far as, you know, the people who come into your life that you never saw before, the people who are kind of essentially trying to take advantage of you. Did you kind of, you know, experience that when you were in a, in a uh, for, uh, when you was uh, pl- playing for the Mets? Yeah, I'll go through a little story. I think from any, we weren't fortunate enough to have anyone take advantage of us, I guess, other than the, the you know, the Mets and uh, as minor leaguers and things like that, you, you don't make that much money. Uh, it's, uh, it, you know, NFL, NBA, you know, you're getting that big contract. Uh, they, they say they intentionally want you hungry, uh, which it is, it is literal and figurative. Uh, but it's funny, the experience was, you said kind of magical, and I'd agree. It was, my first day was a whirlwind. And this is a, you know, coming from my perspective of I barely even played. I, you know, I played a little fall ball, never saw the field in my last year when I walked on in college. Mm-hmm. So there really wasn't much to speak of that I even did. I, so for all practical purposes, I didn't really get to play. Mm. And so when I showed up to the facility, you know, spring training facility, signed my contract and walk in the locker room and they walked me to a locker and, you know, had my name and the nameplate uniforms in, in there, you know, cleats, everything all set up. It was uh, kind of got a little choked up. It was kind of an amazing experience to see that. And, you know, of course, you're just so nervous because you feel fish out of water. Because I was working an office job two days ago. And yeah. And spring training. And so I'm looking around. I'm kind of waiting to see what jerseys everyone puts on. So I put on the right uniform because no one told me what I should be wearing. And we walk out of the facility. And so they have it roped off where fans are kind of asking for autographs and I guess all the veterans kind of stick to the middle and I'm just kind of in awe following and walking around and I'm on the edge close to where the fans are and a little kid pushes his hat out to me and asks me to sign his hat. And I look around because it's so foreign. I'm going, am I allowed to do this? Wow. (laughs) And so I signed it and then I felt like, I'm like, that poor kid, I just devalued his hat. (laughs) So it was kind of at first just getting used to this dramatic change from being in an office job to all of a sudden, you know, practicing with minor leaguers and big leaguers in, in spring training. It was a, it was an amazing experience. And I just, I felt so fortunate 
uh, to get to experience it. But it was such a whirlwind because everything was new and it was so different than anything else I've ever experienced. Right. And to clarify, uh, did you play for the majors and the minors? Uh, because I know that I know the Mets sometimes they have those affiliate teams. Uh, yeah. No, I actually know. So I never, I, I never actually had any big league time. I, okay. I actually ended up playing for I think three or four different minor league teams within that season and a half. I made some nice progression. But the Mets uh, own those minor league teams, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes, I see. Got organization. it. I, you know, it was one of those where I came into it. Uh, you know, first few outings pitched pretty well. Then I got a little hurt with my hip flexor. Then ended up having some shoulder issues. Uh, they originally diagnosed it as tendonitis. It ended up being a partial tear in my labrum, but we didn't find that out till the end of the season. So I kind of pitched through it and did quite a bit of damage. So then it was by the end of that first season, I really was not the same. Um, so it's kind of tough uh, misdiagnosed injury that just never went away. Yeah, but uh, again, nevertheless, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people still would, uh, you know, wish to have uh, such an opportunity. E- you know, e- even though your, you know, your professional baseball career was short-lived, you know, at the very least, you know, that is a memory uh, you could take with it for the rest of your life. And even, even such a memory is an inspiration to many people to show that, you know, just because their college, you know, athletic coach said they're not good enough does not mean they have to stop there as you have exemplified that you are still able to make it you know even at even skipping three years you know being a senior and walking on uh, you still got that grand opportunity now since that that didn't actually you know you know become your your long-term career you know the the, the question I ask many of the many of the guests we have on is would you say that your college degree has been instrumental to your success today or not? I think going back to what we talked about, it was there was value that I extracted from my undergrad was grad was a great experience of helping me prepare for how to be a professional in the workplace. Indiana University did a great job with that. I wish I would have taken more out of the curriculum in undergrad and got my money's worth with that rather than seeing it as, okay, you know, learn the content for the exam and move on. So uh, undergraduate had a lot of value. I just don't think I fully tapped into it like I should have. That's where, you know, then as I talked about my graduate degree, uh, I engaged with the curriculum at such a different level because I did it full time while working and I was able to apply it. And so to me, it, it wasn't about the quality of the curriculum between undergrad and graduate. It was more of my mindset and how I truly engaged with the curriculum and used it. And maybe that's a bit just more about my learning style that I have to apply it before it really, you know, registers or resonates with me. Mm. You, you talked about, you know, some of the lessons that you've learned from your childhood what were some of the lessons that you learned as a professional baseball player and how did they translate into the boardroom of a real estate company? It is, it was invaluable. I I took a ton of life lessons away from it. One of the things that I took was it was refocused me on how these professional athletes would work on their skills, strengths, weaknesses to round out their skill set, And, it to me changed my mindset of how I developed myself as a talent, looking at myself as, 
you know, how do I make myself the most valuable commodity for the companies that I work with or lead? And so I took that kind of growth mindset and training and applied it to my career. So, you know, looking at how do I develop my presentation skills? How do I help, you know, my coaching, teaching and leading and really spending time and energy on, on the practice field, essentially, you know, for business versus, you know, the, everyone looks at sports and sees games, right? You see game day on Sunday for the NFL and people realize how much work's going on behind the scenes. What are individuals are doing to work on their fitness? What are they working in the weight room? Whether they're working on, you know, on the practice field, whether it's, you know, it's quarterback working on their throws, receivers on their routes, whatever it is, there is, you know, 10 to 100 times more work going on on the practice field. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the number one takeaway from that journey in professional sports was treating myself almost like how do I train and develop my skills to be the best I possibly can be. And that made all the difference in the world, my career before playing baseball. Mm -hmm. And then post, my ascent through the ranks was very rapid because I adopted that mindset and I actually put the work in every night instead of training to be a professional baseball player. I was training to be a leader of a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I guess that leads me to the next question. You know, many people will typically you know, if you're going to college, it's kind of very hard to find like a real estate career. I mean, you can you can study architecture, mm -hmm. uh, you can study, you know, engineering, but to actually get, I don't know, like a bachelor's or master's degree in real estate, that's very rare that you'll see from a university. Uh, typically, you can get these continuing education courses. You can, you can get a certification from, uh, you know, some type of... Uh, uh, organ some type of uh, organ nonprofit organization. You could mm -hmm. be a, you could be a realtor, and then you can get what they call CEUs, and you know get things at other specialties. You know, for someone for someone uh, who is interested in uh, maybe getting into this field, and since it's not readily available in a university a major offering, um, perhaps you can. Um, Perhaps you can advise, you know, what would be a great way for someone that can get the knowledge as well as the experience in an entry-level way uh, to learn about property management? Well, you hit it on the head. Uh, first, you know, only a few universities, I know it's not overly common, have real estate type degrees. Uh, so it's, you have to work a little bit. Uh, there is, uh, as you mentioned, different certification programs and things you can get involved in. The National Association of Residential Property Managers, which is is known with the acronym NARPM, mm -hmm. that is a great organization. It's the biggest in property management. I actually sit on a couple of committees for them. And we help develop one of their certification programs that really I just have to be a member to uh, to be able to participate in those certification and training programs. Uh, the other things you can do is reach out to your network and see who's involved mm -hmm. in the space. Just similar as we were talking about finding workouts, mm -hmm. right? It's who do you know in the space if you have an interest? Uh, it's funny. I talked about this in finding mentors. And, and when you're trying to plan out your career, I wrote a book this year. And it's about managing your career like a business. But it was the the key is to find who do you have in your either your LinkedIn, your Facebook accounts there, or even, you know, real you know, people, you know, on a personal level, you know, that may be in that 
vertical or that business space that you want to get into, offer to take them out for coffee or grab lunch and pick their brain. How did they get in or who do they know or maybe even doing some shadowing of them so you can get a taste and see if this is really something that you want to, uh, you know, potentially spend a lot of time and energy on. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, (laughs) there's a lot of people, uh, that may say, you know, oh, yeah, I want to get into real estate because that's where all the money is at. And, of course, there is some truth to that. But sometimes many people, they, they're interested in something, but they don't, really, they, they don't really know the details. They don't know the pros. They don't know the cons. cons. They don't know uh, some of the things they need to expect, you know, if they get into such an industry. Maybe you can highlight, you know, from your experience, you know, being uh, in this uh, in this uh, world for seven plus years, you know, what are some of the pros of being in, in a property management industry and what's, what are some of the cons? I think it's a great industry, first off, growing. Uh, as we're going through a shift, home ownership rates are in the decline and more people are becoming renters. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the traditional American dream of owning a home is not held as, with some of the younger generations at the same level. And that's because of multitude of reasons, it's not just preferences. There's some, you know, impairments that they've been, impediments they've encountered mm-hmm. with being saddled with student debt like no other. So it makes it a little harder to get into owning a home. Uh, but also just, you know, people are moving around jobs and want some flexibility. And so they're not anchored to the homes. And then they also, a lot of people saw what happened to their parents uh, through 2008 with that kind of housing, um, you know, that the housing bubble and how that hit them or people lost a lot of their net worth. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at it as, it's just a growing segment and really love the property management space. It's very in, much in the early stages, even though it's been around for quite some time, it's been extremely fragmented. Uh, there are 80,000 property management companies out there. We are the, by far and away the largest in the space with over 300 offices wow. across the United States. And we don't even account for 0.2% of market share. And so there is still just a wealth of opportunities. Uh, So I look at this as there's a growing demand on a macro level, which makes this space very, you know, a very opportune time to get into it. Uh, These businesses are very predictable. Uh, They are subscription-based type businesses. So you would sign, you know, you sign people up to a management degree, you get a reoccurring revenue. You don't have to recapture the customer on a daily basis, like whether it be a restaurant, right? You have to bring that customer back in every day, continue it. So those are kind of some of the positives uh, of the space, a big opportunity growing, a great economic model for these businesses. Uh, As you look at some of the challenges, it, it's a it's a tough business. It's uh, you're in in a difficult situation. You're in managing between the homeowner, who you know owns the home, and then the the resident, or you know more commonly known as the tenant, who lives in the home. And there's a little kind of tug of war that you're in the middle of that you have to be kind of a master at conflict resolution and managing those relationships while following local laws and requirements for habitability. Mm-hmm. And so that can be challenging if you don't have that kind of personality to help and handle and diffuse those difficult conversations. 
Yeah, you know, that, you, you definitely have to have people skills for that job. You know, I would, uh, I, I would definitely imagine, you know, everyone is not going to be uh, easy to work with, you know, especially when you're dealing with uh, a various, uh, you know, different types of tenants. Um, I, I, think, I think one thing that perhaps people like maybe have a clearer picture on is obviously people, they know, that this type of industry could be lucrative, but they want to kind of have an idea about, you know, how much they can expect to make. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you're very well established. You, you, you have, uh, you know, you have, as you said, 300 offices uh, around the country. But, you know, uh, if you could give the audience, you know, you know, perhaps like what can be the average amount that a person maybe can make from one, let's say, lease, and then kind of on an average of an aggregate of a certain amount of transactions they do on a month basis, you know, you know, you know, what are some typical projections that, let's say, a typical property management company can earn? So I'm going to disappoint you on this, Caleb. We, uh, we are a franchise, and so we're regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. And one thing I am not allowed to disclose because it can be construed as an earnings claim is actual economics behind it other than what we put in our disclosure documents. long time ago, individuals who sold franchises, and so, you know, obviously you're familiar with the concept of franchises that, you know, McDon- like McDonald's, Subway's, in, you know, individuals who previously sold maybe and not some of those uh, established franchises overrepresented what they you could make. Mm-hmm. And so we're very regulated. So it's funny if we were talking about and I was not a franchise concept, I could answer every single one of those questions without getting in trouble with the Federal Trade Commission. But unfortunately, I am restricted on what I can say. So you know, here's where my recommendation would be. Anyone who's in the space who owns and runs one of these, whether it be one of our franchisees or even an individual who just runs a property management business, has no constraints on uh, telling you those types of things, what they do. Obviously, it might be a little personal um, sharing that. It's uh, at the very least. Uh, and, you know, one thing that makes it lucrative is it's like a, it's what Eric Reese talks about in the Lean Startup as a sticky engine of growth. And yes. where that basically you're get you know, you know, once you start to once you start to get uh, leases, uh, you know, that, that you're going to manage, it, it, it becomes a recurring source of revenue or that some people call it passive income. And it's something that you could eventually scale. Typically, that type of business kind of goes off a of word of mouth. You know, one person is happy with, you know, the job you're doing as a property management and they tell one of their friends who has rentals and they come to you and that kind of builds, you know, um, you know, it, 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 maybe you can answer this question. <laughs> has that kind of been uh, the way your company has grown, kind of based off of word of mouth? So actually, we leverage a lot of different avenues. And mm-hmm. your, your assessment of the business is correct as you look at the economic model. Because mm-hmm. if you look at it, it, is, it becomes a reoccurring revenue that you have to manage. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's obviously work behind the scenes, so it's not just mailbox. It's not passive in the sense of mailbox money, but you have those contracts secured, and there's work uh, behind it, supporting it. What ends up happening is really your main cost is levering up with people. And and you, you leverage technology software, but it's a very straightforward business model because you don't have any inventory. You you can get away with it. And, you know, some people will do it without office space. Our offices are required to have office space. Mm-hmm. So it becomes very predictable 
as you, you know, ramp up and go, okay, if I have this many homes, I can, add, I need to all need to add this kind of employee and staff. And mm-hmm. so you can model it as the business evolves and grows with you. Mm-hmm. As we look at it from a growth vehicle, word of mouth, you know, leveraging the, the, real, estate, the real estate agent networks, uh, those individuals who are in complementary uh, verticals are very beneficial and that plays a big role. But our group also does spend quite a bit on outbound marketing efforts. It's important to continue to grow because people will end up, even though they're with you for years at a time, they will age out, maybe retire, sell the home, mm-hmm. or you know, even to, you know, just tap. You know, right now we're seeing it where individuals are getting great returns on homes they bought in 2008. So now they're they're flipping those, mm-hmm. and so you will experience some turnover. So you always have to have that growth engine going. So we do invest out not only on the referral, which is a big part, but outward marketing, digital elements, mailers, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very aggressive as a group to continue that growth trajectory because the thing is, as you get experienced and seasoned in these businesses, it, it just becomes very clear on how you're how you scale in this business up and adding over, you know, adding staff and refining your business model as you grow from say maybe a few dozen to a few hundred to even a thousand properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are again, as a, from a, a you know margin perspective, very compelling businesses. I, I lived in the food world where that was, uh, you know, very small profit margins. Though. Oh, yeah. And that, which can be very tough. So the margin for error in these businesses are a lot higher than, you know, food type businesses. Yeah. And uh, as we come to a close, uh, Lucas, if people want to get in contact with you, if they want to follow you, perhaps if they want to uh, list their property with you, you know, how can they do that? Yeah, easiest way to get to us for our business is realpropertymgt.com. And we have obviously contact information, phone numbers, emails there if anyone's looking to uh, uh, contact myself or any member of our team or even one of our local offices across the United States. Great. Lucas, thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Just another great episode by Callan Diggs. If you haven't already, purchase the book, Reaching the Finish Line, at reachingthefinishline.com. Now is time for you to start reaching your finish line. So what are you waiting for? Start 